Caesarea, which is the provincial capital, see Governor Felix, as a protective measure. There's these uh, 40 men who put themselves under oath not to eat or drink until they've ambushed and killed Paul. And um, I'm sure that uh, those were uh, 40 men who must have starved to death because they didn't get the job done. Uh, or perhaps they found some way around that oath. But Paul has uh, now been uh, transported to Caesarea, and the time's come just uh, in just a few days here for a hearing. And so that's what we're seeing in chapter 24, the accusers and Paul before Felix. Any comments or questions about the uh, background of this? And remember, we... uh, we know some things about Felix. It might be helpful to say that. Again, I don't have the paper uh, with me that uh, said, but one of the Roman historians said that he exercised the office of the governor with the mind of a slave. He had been a slave. And he uh, had some very impressive uh, wives, a succession of three that had noble births and that you know elevated him, but he was not a good leader at all. And uh, so that's who they're before. All right, Uh, the the side of the prosecution, I guess you would say, chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these uh, things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Wow. Uh, Ananias, remember what Paul had just said to him. He's a whitewashed. Yeah, you whitewashed wall. Uh, So he's probably not overly pleased with Paul at the moment. And uh, they've got an attorney named Turtleus, who um, is a... um, No, he knows how to get the job done. So how does he begin this uh, speech uh, accusing Paul? Buttering up the... Judge first. Boy, wasn't he ever. You know, since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way, and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I might not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Whoa, that's nauseating. And and the thing of it is, you know, here's a governor who's known for being cruel, greedy, and violent. So, 
what's he talking about all this peace and providence and reforms and all that? You notice he speaks in broad generalities. It would have been hard for him to come up with any specific illustrations of this. I mean, during his governorship, in insurrections increased, you know, chaos and tumult increased. Uh, so, you know, this is just, he sort of made this up. I guess this is what Felix would like to think of himself as being. And then, it's as if Felix is so busy with these reforms that Tertullus doesn't want to uh, prolong this any longer so he can get back to all the wonderful things he's doing for the nation. You know, which is also pretty sickening. You know, and it sounds like he's just, you know, he's just happened to restrain himself from expressing more of his appreciation for all the wonderful things Felix is doing. I mean, you wonder if Felix himself could have possibly believed this guy was, you know, doing anything other than just lying through his teeth trying to flatter him. But isn't that the way worldly people do? You know, what do you know when a worldly person starts telling you how great you are? He's lying. He's lying and he wants something. He wants something. Wait a minute, what if I'm great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been listening to those people too much. Wait, somebody today, just tell me. Yeah, yeah. What did they ask you for this? Yeah, you know, it's like, wow. You know, we will get some of that. Preachers get that sometimes. And it's always a trap. You know, you're never as great as what some people want to tell you. And, you know, either they are totally naive, or they're just flattering, you know? I mean, it's really not helpful to the person. If you tell somebody they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, is that going to help them? It's going to increase pride. What would Paul say to somebody to build them up and encourage them? He might thank God for them. He'd tell them he's thanking God for what God's doing. Now, that's a good thing. It makes us think about the Lord and how he's responsible for any good that there is. It's not that we never should recognize God's work in someone, but we need to give the credit to the Lord instead of just developing this elaborate, you know, praise. I think we ought to think about that. I realize, you know, not, not all of you are in this position. I may be speaking to the choir, but I think we ought to think about that when it comes to introductions of speakers in churches, which every once in a while gets to be like, whoa. You know, I mean, nobody could be like that. Um, and, and it's got to be a temptation to the speaker. I mean, mean, why are we trying to focus all this attention on the man that's preaching the gospel? That really doesn't matter who the guy is who's preaching the message. If the message is from God, then great. It's great because it's from God, not because, you know, Mr. Big Shot was the one that that spoke. So I think, think, you know, by contrast, we can see what we, we should not do. Thoughts or comments on those first four verses? Well, what's he accusing Paul of? He's just a pest. Yeah, he's a real pest. (laughs) (laughs) It's real specific. And what else? He 
tries to make it sound like he's bad for everybody, but he has to put in there, he stirs up dissension among the Jews. Well, and think about what he said to flatter Felix, that we have attained much peace through you. Here's a guy trying to, you know, disturb the peace. You know, he's constantly, you know, trying to get things stirred up. And uh, also he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, Whatever that might mean, you know, it's rather non-specific as well. And there's one other specific charge that he makes against him. Yeah, this desecrating the temple. Remember that deal that they'd seen him in, in the city with an Ephesian Gentile. They saw him in the temple, Paul, and for whatever reason they assumed he brought this Gentile that was with him into the, in the city into the temple, which was not true. Uh, you'd think you'd have to actually see the guy in the temple with Paul to make that, you know, draw that conclusion. But, uh, so so that's what they're, uh, you know, arguing. And, and don't you love the middle of verse 6, and then we arrested him? <laughs> Would lynched maybe be a uh, more accurate description? Arrested him for crying out loud. Wow. And, uh, you know, what kind of evidence is Turtleus providing for all these wild-haired accusations. Oh, we get to that later. Yeah. Which is Paul saying there isn't. No, in verse 9, all the Jews joined in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah! There's our evidence. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, he says a lot of stuff, but but they're rather vague and nonspecific charges for the most part, and there's no kind of supporting evidence to confirm what he's saying. How would there be? Comments? That's what Turtleus says. Now we've got what Paul says back. Okay, but um, now I have a note that says uh, that the sect, the reference to the sect in verse 5 is uh, synonymous with the word heresy. So it kind of, if, if that's true, you know, there's the connotation. It kind of fits with the, the other things he's saying about a troublemaker and a... That is the connotation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That it's a, a, you know, a heretical sect. You know, this is not an orthodox, you know, approved of movement. This is some kind of a heretical sect. That, that is the idea but still, it's like, okay, in what way is this heresy? Yeah, is it possible, uh, <clears throat> I read where somebody proposed that this, this Turtleus, the, 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 the attorney, maybe is not a Jew? Yeah, there's no particular reason to think he would have had to have been. Um, when it says in verse 9, the Jews also join in the attack, that might imply he himself was not a Jew. I'm not sure you'd have to say that from that. Also the for this nation in verse 2? Yes, that he's distancing himself from that. So, yeah, I think it's perfectly possible. I suspect Turtleus was whoever they thought the best attorney was Mm -hmm. that could argue the case before Felix. Isn't that what we do? Again, shows, I think, how desperate they are to what lengths they will go to to associate themselves perhaps with a, a Roman against Paul. Yeah, yeah, may have been. And yes, I think they would have gone to any length. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're really, you know, character's not the issue here. 
Other thoughts? Well, you know, what you really had are these three accusations. You want to kind of sum them up. You've got this dissension thing. You know, this, uh, he's causing trouble. You've got this sect, this heresy of the, Nazar- uh, the Nazarenes. And then you've got this desecrating the temple. It looks to me like, more or less, Paul follows that outline as he responds here. I'm going to see if you can see that as we, as we read this. So 11 to 21. Actually, 10 to 21, sorry about that. And when the governor had not agreed to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before, both before God and before man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia, who ought to have been present before you, and to make accusation, if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Alright, so what's Paul's... um introduction to his defense. Does he say something uh, positive towards Felix? You've been a judge or a governor for a long time. <laughs> he says something positive. You know, I'm, I'm glad to talk to you because you've been at this a long time. It's really, I think, probably the most positive thing you can accurately say. You know? He's got some experience in the job. You know, would you expect Paul to lie and say something that wasn't true about Felix? And uh, given what we know about him, there wouldn't have been much else good to say about him. (laughs) So, Paul says that. And now he starts making his defense. Now, this attack on him stirring up dissension among all the Jews. Look at 11, 12, and 13. When did he go up to Jerusalem? Twelve days ago. Twelve days ago. He'd been in Caesarea for five. He hadn't been there long enough to stir up anything. You know, hardly time to organize a rebellion against Judaism. Uh, And, he says, not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the city, did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. I did not do it. You know, so, you know, and he says, they can't prove it. You know, I didn't do it. One, there long enough to do it, even if I wanted to do it. And they have no evidence that I was doing it. So that's that charge. It's always hard to refute a charge that has no basis. There's nothing really to refute. You know, if, if, if they had given some kind of evidence, he might have to explain their evidence. They didn't give any evidence. So all he says is, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't. 
And then, regarding this idea of this sect, or heretical sect, of the Nazarenes, in verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, look, I admit this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there'll be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Christianity is not a betrayal of the Jewish faith. It is exactly what the fathers believed. It's exactly what the law teaches. It's the same principles that these guys themselves even believe. There's nothing heretical about it. So he confesses this. Yeah, he is a part of the Nazarene group. But there's no crime in that. That's just the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking for. And then as far as the sacrilege of the temple, well, in verse 17, what was the real reason he'd come back? Fulfill a vow or something. Yeah. He made the offerings, but what else? Yeah, but not just that. What was his purpose for coming to Jerusalem in the first place? To worship. Not just to worship. What does he say? Wasn't it a vow? Is that not bring alms? Bring alms to my nation. What did that mean? Is it like taxes? No. What were the alms that he brought? Gifts. What kind of gifts did he bring? Collections from the churches. Yes! Remember, it's on this third journey that he's taught the churches of Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia to be giving money. They selected their own people to carry it, but Paul went with them. So he was accompanying these alms to the nation, to the Jewish Christians, but they were a part of the Jewish nation. Paul came back to be a blessing to the Jews, even with benevolent help from these Gentile churches. That's an interesting point. And then he says, you know, and, and to present offerings, and that's what I was doing in the temple. I've been purified. You know, there's no crowd or uproar. And, and these Jews from Asia should be present and make an accusation <laughs> if they have anything against him. You know, the absence of anybody who'd seen him or even claimed to see him do anything wrong in the temple is pretty good testimony that they don't have a case. And so, you know, he said, what about the only thing? Is that one time when I when I got before the council and I shouted out that I was on trial for the resurrection of the dead? Well, you remember what that caused? What did it cause? Yeah, split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If believing in the resurrection is a crime, half the Sanhedrin are criminals. You know. That's the only thing you can say against him is that he claimed to believe in the resurrection and split the, the council. You know, besides that, this whole idea of, you know, sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege are all three bogus charges against him. And I think he's done a good job of going through those one by one and just proving there's no basis, in fact, in any of those things. 
comments and thoughts on all that. It's a pretty long speech. So this is the same where you said they went through, you know, Galatia and the rest already. This is the same reference he's making when you wrote to the Corinthians and First Corinthians sixteen one. Two. Yes. Okay. Yes. Second Corinthians eight and nine, one to thirteen. <coughs> yeah. Same. Um, this is in verse 15. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. He says they believe that, but with the Sadducees, they wouldn't believe that, would they? Not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees. Well, he says that they, he would say they, have yeah. like a whole group. Uh, yeah, well, obviously the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, or perhaps, I, you know, I don't know. No. I mean, I'm assuming he's just talking about those that, you know, would believe in the resurrection. Notice there'll be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Not a resurrection of the righteous and a thousand years later a resurrection of the wicked like a lot of people teach today. It's a resurrection of both righteous and wicked. Other thoughts and comments on that speech? Wasn't, wasn't a Sadducee, wasn't the really only difference between Sadducees and Pharisees and Sadducees didn't, they didn't believe he even died, did they? I know they didn't believe in resurrection, but did they believe that Jesus? Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. At all, period. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. They, it wasn't just Jesus. Oh, just they didn't Jesus. believe that yeah. men were raised. Okay. They didn't believe, according to chapter 23, they didn't also, didn't, they didn't believe in angels or spirits. Okay. They were kind of materialists, you know. They, they didn't believe in a lot of that stuff in the spirit world. Were, were, were they kind of like Pharisees? I mean, like they knew a lot about the scripture of the Old Testament. So, I mean, like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, these were kind of like social slash political slash religious clubs. <laughs> and the Sadducees tended to be the aristocrats. The temple, like the priests and things, pretty much Sadducees. The Pharisees were more, you know, uh, associated with the people. Are they supposed to, are they kind of like Common. elders? Well, the elders just, we've older men who guide the, the, the congregation. I don't know that the elders had to be either Pharisees or Sadducees. Okay. And so did the Sadducees not believe that Elijah raised the widow's son? I don't or know what they said. You know, yeah, I'm not sure what they did with all that. <laughs> Didn't they only believe the first five books? Um, there's that. I've, I've read that. I've also read that that wasn't true. I don't know which is right. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Everybody else knows the Bible. They it's not true. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they would make that an exception or if they. I don't know. Paul mentions again his conscience in sixteen. I don't know if it's a similar purpose at this point. Yeah, in other words, he's still living in a blameless conscience based upon the law and the forefathers. Other thoughts or comments through 21? Alright, 22 to the end of the chapter. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. 
and he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Alright, so look at what happens. They, he's heard both sides. What's Felix's verdict? Take care of it later. Yeah. Uh, he postpones it. Uh, until what? Until Lysias comes. Yeah, who was Lysias? The one that arrested him. The one that arrested him, the commander who sent Paul to Felix. And what he says is, you know, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Well now, why does he need Lysias to come down to decide the case? I don't know, but Lysias must be pretty busy. Ah, yeah, good point. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a third party to corroborate or deny maybe parts of the story. I don't know that he would have direct knowledge about a lot of this, though. It is. That's what he's trying to imply why I'll get him to come and give his side of the story. There's only one problem with Felix saying that. What's the problem? Why it take to be you? Well, that too. <laughs> well, what's the initial problem with that? You know, when he says, listen, you know, I'll wait for Lysias to come down. You know, implying, well, I'll get his view on this, since he was the one who was there. He wrote the letter. Yeah. He wrote the letter. Well, so? He already gave his view. He already says in 2329, I found him to be accused of a question about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. So we know what his view was. That's just a smokescreen. That's just a delay tactic. I'll, I'll wait and listen to Claudius Lysias. He already had. So, I think, you know, a lot of times we'll just come up with some kind of an excuse when that's not really the reason. I would put this off because, you know, stop and think about it. Is that the reason? So, so that, that makes it, maybe, maybe makes it sound more reasonable to people who didn't know anything about the letter, which would be most everybody, you know, that he's going to wait. And, uh, so then, I don't know if Lysias ever came down. Uh, you'd assume he did at some point, but that didn't seem to take care of this. Um, so, what else did Felix do after a time? Paul to talk to him. Him and his one of his wives. Yeah, him and the uh, new new missus. Felix is Drusilla's second husband, and Drusilla is Felix's third wife. <laughs> and wait, 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 can you say that again? <laughs> it gets complicated, you know, and it does today too. Felix is Drusilla's second husband. She's been okay. married to one other man. Okay. 
And Drusilla is Felix's third wife. He's been married to two other women before this. Okay. I thought you said that Drusilla was his third husband. Sorry, if I said that, I, I'm I, sorry. I, I don't, no, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead. I don't have to say most anything, but You're fine. that obviously wasn't the case. Um, and it's kind of interesting. You know, the subjects that he discusses. Now, you know, you think about Again, this idea of here's Felix the governor, you're Paul, on trial, what do you talk about? Get me out? <laughs> no. Uh, I'll never do anything again? No. He talks to him about um, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Wonder why he chose those topics. Applicable. Yes. Just exactly the three subjects they needed to hear about. So Paul goes on the offensive and preaches a sermon that steps on their toes in just the points where they're, they're in trouble. This is, again, God allowing them to bear witness before the governors. That's exactly what had been said back in Luke chapter 21, uh, when he says in verse 12, but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. There you have it. There's an opportunity for his testimony. Um, Drusilla, by the way, we talked about this last time, but not all of you were here. Drusilla comes from a famous family. Whose family was she a part of? Herod. The Herod family. So, you the family tree. She is great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, the Herod who killed the Bethlehem babies. She is... Uh, what did I say? She's great-granddaughter. Yeah. She is... Yeah, that's correct. She is great-niece, that would be one step down from a great-granddaughter, she's great-niece of the Herod Antipas that beheaded John the Baptist. She's the daughter of the Herod who cut off James' head, imprisoned Peter, then didn't give the glory to God, was eaten by worms and died in Acts chapter 12. She's his daughter. My words. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's Acts twelve twenty three. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm assuming probably internal. Oh. Yeah. I don't I don't think you have to imagine that the worms were on the outside, you know, eating their way in, but yeah. Kinda of gross anyway you look at it. <laughs> Whether they're on the inside or the outside, it's still not a very pleasant way to go. Well that's true. Yeah. Um, she's a sister to who we'll be reading about in the next chapter King Agrippa and Bernice that's who she is and he preaches that and how does Felix respond It scared him. 
But what did he decide to do? Put it off again. Yes, he decides just not to decide. We like to decide not to decide because it makes us feel like we're not choosing against the right thing. What we must learn is not deciding as a decision. The decision is, are you going to do the right thing right now? Either yes or no. This idea, well, I'll do the right thing later, I don't know. You don't know either. But that's a decision not to do the right thing now. That's the only thing you can decide. You can't decide what you're going to do tomorrow. That's a, that's a cop-out. Ever decide you were going to do something tomorrow and you didn't do it tomorrow? Yeah, what, what, what's your percentages on that? <laughs> you know, deciding to do something tomorrow just means I've decided not to do it today. That's all that means. And so, he puts it off, saying, uh, when I find time, I will summon you. You know, our desire not to do what's right often hides behind a busy schedule. Oh, I just don't have time to deal with this now. No, you don't want to deal with it now. That's that's a cop-out. You know, you're ever going to find time to put away a beautiful woman that you're living in sin with? There's always going to be a time issue on that one, isn't there? You're going to find time to repent and humble yourself before God. I mean, you know, there's never a good time for that. You know, and, oh, I've always got something else to do. <laughs> so that's what he does. You know, he really deals with Paul's message just like he dealt with the trial. Not. <laughs> and so, he calls for him, though. Listen to him preach from time to time. I think he kind of likes to get his toes stepped on. You know, he sort of feels kind of purged or at least it's painful. He also has another reason why he calls for Paul a lot. And what was that? Trying to get paid. Yeah. What about those alms? You know, I wonder if he's kept any of those. You know, so he'd like to get a bribe. Um, you know, I've, I've probably told you this story, although this is an encouraging story, uh, in, in Brazil. Um, you know, a, a Brazilian brother, very good man, um, was the owner of a factory, a small woodworking factory. And his 18-year-old cousin, who worked there, improperly fastened a piece in a lathe, and a piece of that wood shot out, hit him right here, and killed him. As a result of that, thankfully, he was a very good Christian, very good young man. Um, as a result of that, the government investigated and found out there were some things not done correctly in the paperwork. Paperwork in Brazil is a nightmare. You think we've got bureaucracy. We have nothing. So it's not uncommon that you'd find some kind of... The, the brother had done it in good faith. He thought he had everything right. Well, they used that then to haul him into the police station over and over again. And basically tell him, look, you know, you're probably facing prison time. You're facing, But we don't really want to do that. You know, we hate to do that to you. And, and the brother just kept telling them, well, look, you know, whatever you have to do, you have to do. But I'm a Christian. And I can't pay your bribe. Well, one time, 
you know, this, you know, went on several times. It was hard for him because, he, I mean, he was an elder in the church. He was kind of worried about even a bad name that, you know, Christ might get. <laughs> you know, elder in the church goes to prison, you know, kind of a headline. Uh, but, but one time, they called him down again. He had his wife pray, and he called another brother and his wife and said, be praying for me. He went down there, they go through the same spiel. You know, look, it could be this, it could be that. But we don't really want to do this to you. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I cannot pay your bribe. You know, you have to do whatever you have to do. And, and the, the police officer that kept doing this with him said, well, okay, I'll ask you a favor. And the brother said, what? He said, would you pray for me and my wife? <laughs> And that was the last they ever heard. Wow. Yeah. Just so, such a trial. You know, and I can imagine, you know, well, well, look, Paul, I mean, you know, man, I sure do hate to, you know, leave you here in prison and, you know, all that, uh, you know, all the invite. I mean, you know, a, well, what would be wrong with just going in and paying a bribe and getting out? Do you understand why a bribe's wrong? What would the idea of a bribe be? A bribe is supposed to be used for what? Influence the decision. So it's not really what, it's to not really the right, yeah. it's not the right answer, it's what you paid to answer. Exactly. You're trying to get the law to be bent, justice to be bent, so that you, you know, can get some kind of a illegal break. That's why it's a bribe. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between a bribe and say, you know, an application fee. Or, you know, some kind of a fee you have to pay, uh, you know, to get uh, the permit. Or something like that. That's a legal fee you pay. This is under the table money to get justice not to be done. That's why bribery is wrong. It's, it's you know, trying to cause injustice to be done. Or at least what the person says is injustice. So, you know, um, there are some really complicated situations. I've known in Brazil some situations where it was more like thievery. You know, they'll kill you or they'll rough you up if you don't pay them. That's more like being held up. But in this case, it's it was just, you know, a bribe. Uh, and, and that's what he wanted from Paul. You know, obviously Paul shouldn't be in prison. But but the idea of paying him the under the table the money would be, you let me out on the base of the money, not on the base of justice. So Paul won't do it. And after two years, Felix is removed. And, uh, you know, Portius Festus come on, comes on the scene, and Paul's still in prison. This is probably 59 when Festus became governor. So that gives us kind of a date to hang our hat on. All right, anything you want to say about chapter 24? <coughs> chapter 25.